I'm Amarnath Amrathingham, Assistant Professor at uh, Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in in Canada in general? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think um, generally speaking, our numbers are lower than almost, uh, you know, when we think about Europe or the U.S., our numbers tend to be lower uh, on on all counts. Um, the Public Safety Canada came out with uh, their report last year, um, and, and so they kind of stipulated that, you know, Sunni jihadist groups uh, like ISIS-inspired or Al-Qaeda-inspired threats are still the number one concern in Canada. Mm. Uh, we had about 90, we had about 90 or so uh, men and women leave Canada to go fight in Syria and Iraq, um, which is, you know, entirely different uh, in, in terms of scale than some of the numbers we've seen out of the UK or France and mm. parts of Europe. Um, and so that that's one of the main concerns that I think the government's concerned with here. They're increasingly concerned with the far right, of course, uh, groups like Adam Waffen and the base, um, a, a, as well as um, some of these more kind of fringe ideologies. And so uh, that they, we were, I think, one of the first countries to charge an incel attack as terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're quite open in talking about gender-based violence and um, ethnically and religiously motivated violence, uh, kind of Islamophobic violence um, as, as increased threats that Public Safety Canada and, and the RCMP and CSIS are concerned with as well. So um, I think generally we have a lesser threat, if I can say that, than the U.S. and parts of Europe. But I do think the kind of eclecticism that we're seeing, the diversity of threats that we're seeing uh, in all parts of the world now, um, is also very much the very much present here. I mean, we even had uh, a, a few people show up with QAnon flags at an anti-mask protest and a, a kind of a, a protest um, um, designed to kind of push back against some. Uh, some laws in Quebec around uh, the headscarf and things like that as well. And so um, even QAnon has kind of made the migration to Canada in, in, in interesting ways. And so, yeah, I think basically whatever whatever trends we're seeing in, U- in the U.S. and Europe tend to get replicated here, just at a, sometimes a smaller scale. You recently wrote a piece actually about QAnon, and, and I was wondering if you saw any similarities between adherence of of this conspiracy that is not really all that coherent with people who are attracted to other extremist uh, movements or or religious extremist movements that that you've studied? Um, I do think there's similarities there. I mean, it's interesting. um, QAnon is interesting in in, in bizarre ways. I mean, one of the main one of the main differences, I guess, from a group like uh, you know, what happened in Waco or Jonestown or even groups like Scientology is that there there is no real flesh and blood leader, right? Mm. There's no flesh and blood charismatic leader that 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 passes on information. Uh, the organize there's no organization that's kind of hierarchical. Um, but but I, I do think uh, because of this kind of nebulous character uh, of who this Q is, um, it, 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 it has kind of spawned, you know, the followers themselves to kind of take on the mantle of, of prophets or messengers, you know, who are kind of interpreting these bizarre cue drops and passing passing uh, that interpretive power on to their, 
their followers and things like that. So there are religious mm. elements to the movement. Um, I, and, but I, I do think because it's what uh, a few of us have called a kind of super conspiracy, it, it, it tends to drag in, you know, Illuminati, Freemasonry, anti-Semitic stuff, um, and, and just kind of feeds into this uh, broader worldview of, of, of what Q followers um, are, are doing. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, going forward with, with the election and post-Trump, uh, in, in a kind of post-Trump landscape, because for them, you know, Trump is a savior in the White House, um, who is fighting back against the deep state of, you know, uh, made up of satanic uh, pedophiles and so on. Um, and, and so I think with Trump out of the White House, um, um, what, what I think, I mean, what I think is going to happen is they're going to reinterpret the whole thing. And I think some of that is already starting to occur mm-hmm. um, to, basi- to basically say that um, Trump was a kind of flashpoint. We had a, a kind of unique opportunity that we had in the White House. Um, but the problem is much older than Trump, and the problem will persist after Trump, right? And so they'll kind of re- if reify the importance of the movement and reify the importance of themselves to kind of carry on the fight and carry on the torch. This one has a lot of out there theories. Just it really seems almost like somebody who created like a, an intentional trolling conspiracy theory. There are elements yeah. of that in QAnon. I mean, how do you, how do you explain like that the most absurd elements of it are somehow connecting with certain followers. What does that say about people who follow these sorts of movements? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tricky one, because I, I do think, uh, particularly for QAnon, um, they're finding a, a remarkable amount of kind of, you know, a sense of, of a belonging in this online community. And, and some of the QAnon people that have DM'd me over time, as I as I write on the stuff, and they DM me to tell me how much I'm, uh, how, how stupid I am, et cetera, um, <laughs> is, is 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 that um, they they really feel, and I think this is true for a lot of conspiracy theories and theorists that I've, I've talked to in the past, with from 9/11 truthers onwards, is that they really feel that they've been given a kind of kernel of truth. Um, that and that they've been uh, imbued with this broad social or cosmic significance that it is now their responsibility to wake up a sleeping masses, right? They're the only ones who are awake in a room full of uh, room full of sheep or people who are, are are kind of not hip to what's really going on, mm. um, and that gives them a, a, a sense of enormous responsibility to um, to go out there and try to wake up people and try to get people involved. In, in what's really happening. And Q is even more significant in that because it kind of tugs on a kind of moral urgency, a kind of uh, moral urgency question here, because you're talking about children who are enslaved mm. and um, by, by political elites and corrupt political elites. If any of us believed that to be true, we would all be on the streets, right? And I know you've, you've, spent, you've spent quite a bit of time interviewing uh, foreign fighters. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Hearing what you've learned in, in your study there, I think, does uh, shed some light, even in terms of what we're seeing about why people are, are attracted to these broader conspiracies. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I started talking to people um, around 2013 because we, we saw, uh, I, I mean, many of us saw a lot of people from the West, uh, Canada, the U.S., parts of Europe, get up and go fight um, in, in, in Syria um, with a variety of groups that were active there, uh, rebel groups, uh, as well as groups like you know, uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda-linked groups, etc. Um, and one thing that was unique about this conflict was that many of them were young Western kids who arrived in Syria and you know kept their social media profiles active. They were posting about their breakfast and they were posting about what they were doing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, etc. Um, and, and so they 
so for a researcher, it created an interesting opportunity to, you know, not having, not, not, not be willing to kind of fly into a war zone to talk to people, but actually do this kind of digital ethnography or uh, social media interviews to try to get a sense of um, what was happening and why they went and so on. And so th- this is kind of how I started talking to a lot of these fighters who were over there. Mm. Um, and, and I would say, I mean, at least for Canada, and I think this is probably true, uh, for the U.S. and parts of Europe as well, is that we, we noticed kind of two waves of people leave, right? The, the ones that left in 2013 uh, or 2012 and 2013 and, and even a little bit into early 2014 were, were kind of going there for what I've called in the past the kind of transnational activism, right? They, they went because they thought the Assad regime needed to go, that the Assad regime was committing war crimes, and that they went to kind of fight back against this brutal regime that was um, killing their fellow Muslims. And, but they didn't have any real uh, overall, overarching goals uh, in terms of what happens next or what happens after Assad leaves. It was very much about getting, it was very much about being part of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened after June 2014 when ISIS declared its caliphate was the kind of people, kinds of people who started to leave uh, were quite different. So they were, you know, much more ideologically uh, Puritan. They were going there, uh, especially to live and work and help uh, the the established caliphate. Um, women started to leave uh, in increasing numbers to live in the caliphate, have children in the caliphate. Um, and so the motivations for why people um, actually started to leave were quite different. But I, I mean, I, I think this question of, you know, why people become extremists is, is, is not an easy one to answer, but I do think research has shown that um, one of the one of the main things research research has shown is that there is no real profile, right? And and yeah. a lot of academics repeat the, repeat this ad nauseum, and because I think we keep getting asked about it, is what does a vulnerable person look like? You know, who tends to become radicalized? Um, and I think the main finding from decades of research is that that is that is a ridiculous question <laughs> and that, that there's that there's no real answer to that. But, you know, one of the things you mentioned about Q is people are responding to sort of these moral ideas. But my my sense is even as you describe sort of the first wave 2013, uh, 2012 with foreign fighters is presumably there was, there was a moral element that attracted them too. Right. So, I mean, isn't yeah. sort of the idea that we're fighting for a moral cause for a bigger purpose pretty universal? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, from from interviewing a lot of former neo-Nazis as well, this 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 became uh, an important trend. Like the, the reasons people join um, are, are, I think, at base, fundamentally uh, social justice oriented and, and, and morally oriented. It's just a question of it's hard to then make that argument when, when eventually they join a group like ISIS and they start throwing homosexuals off rooftops, right? Mm. And then just say, it, it's hard to make the argument academically even to say this was, a, this was at one point a moral uh, crusade or a moral cause that, that they were a part of. Um, but yeah. I, do think at, I, I do think academically speaking that is, that is quite important. Um, my friend uh, Michael Jerryson, who's an expert on Buddhism, um, calls it sacred emergency, right? And, and so this is why... I think we, we, this is the moral urgency that we're talking about, is that people come to feel that there is a kind of emergency situation, a kind of uh, emergency associated with their social movement, with their in-group that needs to be addressed, right? And a lot of the foreign fighters that I've spoken with basically say, you know, I, I was afraid that I would be asked in the afterlife, what did you do 
when 500,000 people were getting killed mm. and 10, there were 10 million refugees? What is your answer to God um, at that point? Right. And, and for them, it was like, oh, I can't just sit at home and post on Facebook and write letters to my you know, senator or member of parliament. I have to do something. I have to individually do something. I have an obligation to, to act. Mm. Um, and so, um, and, and so um, that, yeah, that, that kind of urgency to act, to do something is hugely galvanizing, I think. And this is where I think the kind of interplay between religion, religiosity, uh, other motivating factors all kind of mesh and come into play. Because I, I, I think we spent too much time trying to separate motivations. Like, is it religion? Is it politics? Is it education? Is it poverty, et cetera? But in many ways, um, and this is where interviews come into play. Is I think when you talk to people, uh, you, you realize that it's everything and anything, right? And it, and mm. that, that, that people, surprise, surprise, are very complex and they're uh, very complicated people and, and they, they do things for a myriad of factors. I'm as fascinated by what attracts extremists into movements as I am what attracts people to study them or to combat them. And so I, I, I ask you, you know, what is it about this work that you've been doing? You know, how did, how did you get started? Um, what was, uh, what is it about it that attracted you? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think part of that, um, I, I come from a civil war context. I'm from Sri Lanka. I'm from the Tamil community in the North. Um, I left at a very young, young age, but, you know, lived, uh, uh lived early on through the war and have family in, in, in the conflict as well. Um, and so, uh, throughout my graduate education, I was very much interested. And even in undergrad, I was very much interested in this question of, um, why, I mean, the very, very question that you're asking is, what what motivates an individual to decide or come to the realization that violence or even basic activism is fundamentally required of them at this moment right mm-hmm. why do they why does it get them why do they get involved in this uh, kind of work and i think um that that fundamental question is basically what i've been doing uh, throughout grad school and and, and since then um so I studied, you know, uh, the LTT in Sri Lanka. I studied foreign fighters and, and, and uh, neo-Nazi groups, um, all with that broader question in mind of, of why did you come to think and, and what factors led you to come to the realization that more was required of you um, than, than simple, uh, you know, simple consuming of knowledge or information and that you actually had to physically go get out and do something. And, and, and can we understand that phenomenon a little better? So, I mean, it sounds like you, you had this broader intellectual curiosity beyond any experiences to understand, you know, why why people do this. You know, do you feel like, like how far along do you feel you are in understanding? Oh, I, I'm... Uh... I'm. I don't think we have the answers, and I think I think some of these questions are. Um, I hate to say this as a social scientist, but I think they're probably unanswerable. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I do think um, at a fundamental level, it comes to kind of human decision making and individual and, and very very individualized. I mean, I've spoken to siblings who one of them went to Syria and another became you know went to law school, and so. So it's like, well, you grew up in the same household, you have the same refugee kind of uh, immigration experience, you have you grew up in, in the exact same religious household. Um, basically, all the factors are the same, except one went this way and the other went this way. And I think at base, that distinction, um, uh, that, that kind of what, what, what's known as the specificity problem, 
um, is almost is, is if if not impossible, very it's going to be very difficult to answer, right? And and so. It kind of feels good, though, to know that there's still some free will. You know, we've talked about f- foreign fighters, uh, neo-Nazis, QAnon. Um, what you spend a lot of, of your day uh, doing is looking at hate and, and, and violence. And in terms of the last couple of years, whether it's in Canada, in the U.S. or around the world, I mean, we've certainly seen our share of, of mm-hmm. difficulty it must take some sort of toll. Like, how do you, how do you maintain your, your ability to, to carry on looking at this? Because these are not always easy things to deal with. No, no, I know. Uh, I, I think um, I was very bad at that aspect of it when I first started in 20, uh, 2012, 2013, because unlike, um, there's two separate things, right? One, th- there was no data problem anymore, like previous terrorism scholars used to complain about, you know, because these are clandestine groups that don't put out any da- content. And so that we, have a da- we, we don't have enough data to analyze them. Actually, with ISIS, you had an abundance of data, right? You had an overwhelming amount of data. They were putting out content on multiple channels, mm-hmm. on multiple fronts all the time. And so there was no real shortage of um, insane things that were coming your way. The second thing, uh, because I was doing interviews, um, it wasn't like meeting somebody at a at a coffee shop talking for 90 minutes and then going their separate ways it it because it was a digital interview um these guys were reaching out to me all day long right so i would be talk i would be carrying on 10 to 12 interviews at once Mm -hmm. because they were all text-based and they would all be responding and engaging in conversation throughout the day for months and years at a time and so it it kind of started to take over my life in, in in weird ways like they would text back at dinner time they would text back in the middle of the night and so it became a uh, kind of all all consuming kind of thing because you also didn't want to not respond um because yeah. they're in a because they're in a war zone they could disappear at any moment they could go away for six months at a time which has happened a few times and come back later on um so it was a, it was a very bizarre way of doing research and so it kind of became all consuming. Mm. And at that point, uh, going, uh, going back to your question, at, at that point, it, it was taking its toll because not only were, uh, not only were they, you know, uh, putting out quite violent uh, videos that you had to watch. There were mm-hmm. attacks happening in Europe, attacks happening in the U S then you were also talking to these people and, and they were telling you all kinds of bizarre things. Um, and so it, it it became quite difficult to engage in that kind of work. Um, at the time, I don't think, uh, I, and I didn't really reach out too much to other people to ask this question, is I, I don't think there was anyone else who was there to kind of talk to about this kind of stuff, right? Whereas I think that's changed hmm. now, um, where there's um, act, active conversations happening in the research community about, uh, you know, making sure grad students aren't exposed to certain kinds of content. Mm-hmm. That that researcher that uh, of kind of protecting researchers. Uh, I think I think that's changed now, thankfully. Whereas you know the new generation of researchers, the kind of grad students who are coming up, um, are very open about um, asking those kinds of questions. I've I've skyped with and talked to. Uh, quite a few grad students who have these kinds of, you know, very specific questions about what they can do to protect um, themselves. Yeah. What What do you uh, What do you tell them? Like, I mean, if someone's saying, "Hey, I'm I'm studying this. It's, you know, I'm seeing these yeah. terrible things. I, I'm, you know, what what kind of advice do you have for for people? Yeah. I, I mean, I I basically tell them the, the lessons I learned over time, which was you don't have to watch everything. <laughs> <laughs> you don't actually have to watch every single 
uh, insane content that these guys put out. Um, you can figure out ways to mass collect information um, through software and other things that uh, make it make it so that you can do analysis on the data without having to consume the data, uh, consume all of it anyway. Um, and and there, there's kind of things you can do in, on that front. Um, but I, yeah, I've, I've encouraged people to kind of step away once in a while, treat it as a treat it as as you're doing other kinds of research. Don't um, don't overconsume. And if you're finding if you're noticing that it's taxing emotionally or something, you know, step away and, and come back to it later, um, because it is it isn't normal information. It's like, you know, endless streams of hate speech and anti-Semitic content and Islamophobia and, and violence and so on. And so it's not it's natural to kind of not be okay with being exposed to that 24 hours a day. Do you find like you've hit that spot where you know how to how to make it not, you know, be able to enjoy life and not have to think about these terrible yeah, things all yeah. the time? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think I think having I think having kind of automated uh, ways of collecting data in the background has been a huge help because now um, I don't have to be in the channel all the time. I don't have to be on platforms all the time. Um, but I know that once I plug in a certain channel or a certain group into a web crawler that it's collecting, right? And I can come back to it when I need it, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to take over my everyday. It's so fascinating. It's, it's like actually having an algorithm that is protecting you from hate instead of feeding it to you. It's a novel. <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah. So um, another question I have about sort of the role of, of, of academics, you know, not every academic is a, is um, an activist. Where do you, where do you see yourself? You know, is, is it, you know, purely, you know, here's information that you hope informs the public discussion and the response to extremism, or do you view yourself personally also having a stake in sort of pushing back against extremism and hate? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think, you know, to, to quote Liam Neeson, I think, I think we ha we do have a particular set of skills here, <laughs> but um, I've briefed a lot of law enforcement officials. I've briefed a lot of government officials so I think in, on the policy side, on the um, research side, I, 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 I don't know if activism is the right word because I, I know a lot of activists in real life and I don't really do what they do in terms of the energy they spend on activism. But I, I do kind of see myself as an academic activist, I guess, whereas it, 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 the, the research I do and the policy debates that I'm involved with um, aren't simply about knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's for... Um, trying to inform the public and, and 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 contribute to policy and contribute to ongoing conversations that are happening. What do, what would you say an average person who's who's listening to to this can do uh, to push back against hate or or extremism? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think don't be hateful is a is a good first step. <laughs> um, I, I think also having a bit of self awareness of when you're reacting to events. Or reacting to information from a position of from your prejudices as opposed to um, evidence is is a good uh, kind of self-awareness technique to have like how how are you reacting to things that are happening in the outside world or and, and where are you you know what kind of uh, stores of information are you reaching towards or to kind of give yourself some sort of understanding are they based on prejudice or are they based on uh, random information that you've gleaned over the years or are they actually based on um, uh, some sort of evidence that you can point to. Mm. Um, I think also getting a, a keen understanding of when you're being played by politicians is good. <laughs> and I, I, I've, I've learned this um, over the years from, from my work in Sri Lanka is that a lot of politicians, I think South Asia in general, and probably more so now in the U.S., 
um, is I think politicians are um, keen on stirring up communal sentiment um, in order for political gain, of course. And but what the mistake they make often is that they think it can be turned on and off, right? So they think during an election cycle, they can ramp up the communal rhetoric and the hate speech. And then once they win, they can turn, you can put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I'm mixing up all kinds of metaphors there, but anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think I think that assumption by some of these politicians that you can just turn, turn it on and off um, has caused a lot of harm because once you start these movements, once you you know feed into that kind of stuff, it doesn't doesn't go away. Um, and so having a increased understanding of of when you're being played, how you're being played um, by politicians is often is often a good way uh, to prevent some of this stuff. Um, and I think I mean generally not to sound too uh, too fluffy, but I think just having a some understanding and forgiveness in your heart is, is, is useful because I think we've become, um, I don't know, we've, we've become much more inclined to try to destroy everybody and everything as opposed to understanding that people make mistakes and, and can, um, and can heal and, and can, you know, get reju- rejuvenated and be part of society again. Um, and, and so, you know, this, this cancel culture stuff, or even how we talk about, re, you know, repatriation and returnees, it's, it's, it's always this kind of, um, I don't want to see them anymore, requ- you know, sequester them away from society, uh, banish them to nothingness, um, which, which I think is, I, I, I don't know if it's new, but I haven't noticed it, you know, to that extent in a long time. And so uh, it, it is a bizarre kind of move in society, I think, to just sequester as much as possible that you don't want to see away from yourself and and that's not really that that is the definition of polarization right so i, I don't think mm. that that's particularly healthy mm. a little fluffiness is fine this is why this pod <laughs> that's why this podcast is spelled with a lowercase e at the beginning um <laughs> so um wh- where can folks uh go to learn more about uh yourself or, or your work um twitter is probably best i, I post a lot of um of the stuff I write there, the stuff I yell about is mostly on there. Um, and so uh, that's at Amar Amaris Hingham on Twitter. Um, from Twitter, I have my website and academic profiles all kind of embedded in there so you can. Great. And and, and so my last question is the, the Kawhi Leonard shot from the corner. <laughs> um, is that the greatest buzzer beater in NBA history? Um, I would say so, yeah. Friggin' Canada, man. They took it away. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. 
This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.